It's lovely to see you this morning and uh, to be with you and to offer my own words of welcome to Attila and to Adrienne on behalf of us all. Uh, I was on retreat just over a week ago and I read this book by Francis Spufford. You may have seen it. It's called Unapologetic. Uh, and a subtitle, or, or the kind of, which is not terribly, um, thank you darling, um, which is not very snappy, is why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. Uh, and uh, um, he, he wrote it kind of against the kind of new atheists of our day, you know, the Hitchens or the Dawkins of this world. And I, I don't buy everything that he says, but it's a really uh, kind of stimulating read in which he says kind of Christianity works and why it works in the life of a believer as he gives his own story of that. And it's really good. It reminded me of just why it's so good to be clear about what is attractive about the Christian faith. If you're here this morning exploring faith, I imagine that's a question that might be somewhere near the top of your list. What's attractive about it? What's good news about it? If you're a believer this morning, I hope it's a question that you welcome the chance to explore to encourage you in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it attractive to follow Jesus? So let me start this morning by introducing you to two imaginary accounts of what is good news about the Christian faith, okay? First of all, there's Anna. Anna, uh, what Anna loves about the Christian faith is that God's love is so big, she can do whatever she wants. She really likes it, that God's love is there, whatever she does. So she can go out of an evening and do whatever she wants with whoever she wants, and next morning she can get up and know that God loves her. She sees God as tolerant and all-loving, who doesn't really mind what she gets up to. Second, there's Arthur. What Arthur likes about the Christian faith is that it gives him and others a clear moral framework to live by. He loves the fact that the Ten Commandments, the teaching of Jesus, are there to show you what is right and wrong. So at any time, he can know where he stands. And he can be pretty confident that if he keeps the rules, at least better than most other people, God will come down on his side. Who's right? Anna or Arthur? I want to suggest neither, although both have truth in them. But why they are wrong, and what a better account of the good news of Christian faith actually looks like, is going to be our topic this morning, as we look at Ephesians chapter 5 together. Just a reminder of our series, or an introduction if you're here for the first time this morning, we're spending this term looking at the words, the the Apostle Paul's letter, to the church in the ancient city of Ephesus, now southwest Turkey. And while this was the letter of one apostle to the church back then, we believe that it is part of God's inspired word to us, the Bible, through which God speaks to his church today. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. It's on page 1176. There are Bibles just in the seat in front of you. There's a sort of salmon-coloured sort of batting order that shows you kind of what you might uh, expect this morning as you go through. You'll see I'm suggesting we look at this passage under three headings. Um, as we look at page 1176, Ephesians chapter 5. First of all, imitating God, reminding ourselves of the big picture. Then secondly, leaving the darkness. And thirdly, living the light. Now, I have to say, I found this passage challenging as it spoke to me when I was preparing this sermon. But there's a huge encouragement at the end as well. Okay. 
So let's look at these first few verses, which kind of set the scene, I think, for all that follows. Paul starts with a very clear instruction there, right at the beginning of verse 1. Be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. What does that mean? Well, it can't mean we're meant to do exactly what God does. I mean, we can't create the world, stand outside time, hold all the nations in our hands. What does it mean? I think what it's mean is that Paul says we should kind of behave in a way that's consistent with God. We should follow his example and behave in the way that he would want us to act. I was thinking this week of, of, a, of a nationwide advert that's currently being shown at the moment. Let's just have a quick look at this. Do you know that lovely picture, that boy who just wants to be like his father, wants to imitate him? I don't think he's going to catch masses of fish, but he just wants to be like his dad. And we are called to imitate God, not to follow, to follow his example, not in what we can't do, but what we can. That's what it means to imitate God, to be like him. But notice how that sentence ends in verse 1. Look with me, it says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. This is really important. Paul is not saying that we should imitate God so that he will love us. This is not about us trying to earn brownie points with him. That's not the motivation for imitating God at all. We're called to imitate God because he has already dearly loved us in Jesus Christ by sending us to him to die on the cross for us and by adopting us as his children. That's what the first half of Ephesians has all been about, chapters 1 to 3. It's been about God, about Paul exploring the ways in which God has lavished his love and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. How much God has loved them, not because they asked for it or deserved it. So just in this first sentence, we're called to imitate God, not out of fear or duty, but because we know we're his loved, dearly loved children. And just as that little boy wanted to imitate his earthly father, who loves him, so we want to live like our heavenly father, who has already dearly loved us. Our imitating of God is an expression, therefore, of thanks and love to the one who's dearly loved us. Let's go back, therefore, to Anna and Arthur, shall we? What have they overlooked? Well, Anna had forgotten the call to imitate God. She she, she knows the God who has dearly loved her, but she's not saying thank you with her life. To put it in terms of Ephesians, she's almost uh, pretending as if Paul wrote Ephesians chapters 1 to 3 and then stopped there. As if he just told the good news of God's love and then stopped. But instead in chapter 4 verse 1 he says, therefore, live a life worthy of the calling you received. It has an implication. She's forgotten that. What about Arthur? Well, Arthur's forgotten the love that God has already poured upon him. He he knows the God who's called him to a godly life, but he's overlooked the fact that he's not doing it to earn God's love because God has loved him already. Again, to put it in terms of the letter to the Ephesians, he's almost living as if chapters 1 to 3 hadn't been written. And simply, Paul was saying... Live a good life. And forgetting that God has already loved him. This is what it is to live a Christian life. As followers of Jesus Christ, yes, we are called to imitate God, to be, as Paul puts it in verse 3, God's holy people. There is no room for us to just do as we want. We're called to imitate God. 
But our motivation to do this is not out of fear or duty or to try and keep an angry headmaster God on our side, but because we know we are God's dearly loved children and we want to please our Heavenly Father. I wonder which you are this morning. Are you Anna or Arthur? Are you Anna thinking you can basically do what you want because God will love you anyway? Remember, he's called to you to imitate him. Or are you Arthur uh, and you think, crumbs, well, I'd better try and live a good life because I'm not sure if God will love me at the end of it. God has already poured out his love for you in Jesus Christ. And you're called to imitate God out of that love. Imitating God, the heart of the Christian life. The question is, of course, what does imitating God look like? Uh, and that's when Paul gets very practical and gives us two further instructions. I've summarized it on the sheet. It's to leave the darkness and to live the light. Let's look at these together, shall we? First of all, leaving the darkness. It's very clear as you, as you read this passage, you probably noticed it as we read through, that Paul sees a very clear distinction between the works of darkness and the work of light. And just as it cannot, as we know, be dark and light at the same time, so Paul says there can be no confusion between the works of darkness and the works of light. Now, in terms of these works of darkness, Paul knew the type of works of darkness that would have been there in Ephesus in the first century. He knew that because he'd lived there for two years. And so he lists them. What were they? I'll explain them as we go along. First of all, there's sexual immorality listed there in verse 3. The word in Greek is the word porneia, and it referred in Paul's mind, as, any, as a good Jew by upbringing, to any sexual activity outside marriage, marriage understood as a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. Now, I think it should be highly unlikely that the people in Ephesus thought of what they did as porneia. You know, whether it was having affairs or hiring prostitutes or having a same-sex lover while maintaining a marriage, I should think none of them thought of that as porneia, or you you ask your average person in the street of Ephesus. They regarded it as just what was done in what was a fairly permissive Greek society. But Paul says it is sexual immorality, and he says it's a work of darkness. Then Paul talks of any kind of impurity as a work of darkness, relating, therefore, not just to what we do with our bodies, but in our minds too. Reminds me of that passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about um, uh, us committing adultery in our hearts. Then there's greed there in verse 3. This is the pursuit for possessions above all things, a pursuit which leaves relationships, the vulnerable, and everything else in its wake. Now, Paul saw this greed aplenty in what was an affluent and aspiring place of Ephesus. He says it's a work of darkness. There are other works of darkness. Obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, using our mouths in a way that God does not want. And then looking forward to verse 18, there's drunkenness. Again, that would have been par for the course in Ephesus. Entirely normal. But Paul says it's a work of darkness. And Paul's message is very clear. We, We can't avoid it. He says, if you're going to imitate God as his dearly loved children, you're going to need to leave these works of darkness behind. Look with me at verse 3. Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, etc. Verse 11. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Indeed, Paul says in verse 5 that if you stay in these works of darkness, if you are unrepentant in immorality or greed and the like... Your very relationship with God is at risk because you're making that thing your God. You're making it your idol. Leave the darkness 
is Paul's clear message. What's it saying to us today? I think it's saying three things. Recognize, repent, and resolve. First of all, we need to recognize these works in our world as works of darkness. I said earlier that probably people in your everyday street in Ephesus didn't recognize them as works of darkness. It was simply what you did. But Paul says they are works of darkness that will take you away from God. And we need to recognize them as such too because we think darkness is just what happens on a beach in Tunisia or in the eastern part of Ukraine or in a theater in Palmyra. And they are works of darkness. But the deeds of darkness are much closer to home as well. But the snag is that we live in a culture that they say those things aren't deeds of darkness at all. Greed. Greed isn't a work of darkness. It's just aspiration taken seriously. Sex outside marriage isn't a work of darkness. It's just something two or more people can do if they fancy each other. Getting drunk isn't a work of darkness. It's just having a good time. Looking at porn isn't a work of darkness. It's just a harmless way to have fun. Nobody gets hurt. Blue jokes aren't a work of darkness. It's just having a laugh. You and I, we need to recognize these for what they are, which is acts of darkness. They will not lead us towards God. They will only lead us away from God. They are not imitating God. They are ignoring God. First, we need to recognize. Secondly, we need to repent. We need to repent to say sorry to God for the times when we have loved darkness more than light, when with our mouths, our bodies, our wallets, our eyes, we have not imitated God but ignored God. Now, that might sound easy, but I don't think it is. Because I find it much easier to be scandalized by other people's sins than to repent over my own. I call it the Daily Mail approach, because that newspaper, better than any other, manages to catalogue other people's works of darkness in such a way as to make me both fascinated and shocked at the same time. Oh, it's dreadful, tell me more. (laughs) I need to repent over my works of darkness, of my pride, of my lust, of my ungodly speech. Because I'm not just looking at what I do, but what is going on in my heart. And there I know there are works of darkness. So I come to God not with excuses, but to say sorry. And the third thing to do is to resolve. What I mean by that is to take action to leave the works of darkness behind. Because I think that's very much there in Paul's language of not a hint and have nothing to do with. Paul implies that his readers are to take steps to leave those works of darkness behind, don't cuddle up to them, flee from them. We need to resolve not to cuddle up to the works of darkness. Don't put ourselves near them. For some of us, that might mean making sure that we are not surfing the web late at night when self-control is at its weakest. For some of us, that might mean that we give away the equivalent of whatever we spend on a luxury item. For some of us, that might mean asking a friend to hold us to account if we are not using our mouths in a godly way. It may mean something very different to that. But if we recognize the deeds of darkness to which we are vulnerable, if we repent of our doing them, 
We will want to resolve that we move away from them and towards imitating God. Now, you might say that that's absolutely impossible. Philip, in order to do that, I'd have to move to the outermost Hebrides of Scotland because I can't get away from them. Have you seen my walk to work, the billboards that are there? Have you seen the stuff on television? Have you seen the office in which I work? I can't leave those works of darkness behind. But Paul didn't ask the Ephesians to leave Ephesus, but he did task them to take seriously the need to imitate God. So can I ask you this morning the questions I had to ask myself as I prepared this sermon? Do I recognize the works of darkness which I do as darkness? Do I repent of them? And do I resolve to walk away from them? That's the challenge. But there's an encouragement as well. Because Paul doesn't simply give the negative, he also gives the positive. In other words, he doesn't just counsel the Ephesian believers to stop doing things, but rather to start doing things as well. He encourages them not simply to leave the darkness, but also to live in the light. Look with me at verse 8. For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Live as children of light. What does that look like? A few examples. First of all, there's giving thanks. It's mentioned there in verse 4 and verse 20. And I think giving thanks is a great antidote to focusing on what we don't have or want to have. Because when we make a decision to give thanks for what we have, it puts lusts of every sort in perspective. Then there's music and worship. Uh, Look at me at verse 19 and 20. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. You see, Paul does not have in mind a very dour community of kind of people sheltering sort of in Ephesus, looking in horror at the world going on outside. You know, isn't that dreadful? He has a vision of a community celebrating. People are having a better time than the people who are sleeping around and getting drunk and generally having a kind of fairly shallow time in Ephesus. He regards a community that's more joyful, not less joyful. He, he sees them as people who are up more filled with God and not grabbling around in kind of uh, uh, shady places. I, I heard the story recently from a church member who was having building work done in her house and whichever contractor was there first each morning seemed to have the right to choose the music station for the day. So the first person, this church member, decided one day to get in there first and put on a Hillsong worship album. And later in the day, she found one of the builders whistling along, saying, I really like this. What is it? And she was able to say, it's worship music. We sing some of it at our church. We haven't done it for a while as a family, but we tried for a while to have worship music on in the morning while we were having breakfast, simply to lift our hearts to God at the beginning of the day. I suspect we need to start thinking about doing that again. And I want this church to be known, not as a church that looks in horror at the world outside, but rather as a church that is celebrating and reveling in the love of God. Yeah? I heard a great story the other day about a, a sheep farmer in Australia. Uh, and a guy went to visit the sheep farmer, and he said, uh, he said, I just noticed one thing about your sheep farm. He says, there aren't any fences. How do you keep the sheep? You know, you live in this huge place. How do you keep the sheep near you and stop getting attacked and things like that? And, and the farmer said, we, we don't need fences because we've got a watering hole. So they always stay near the watering hole, and that's what defines them. I don't want us as a church to be kind of filled with horror 
or, or sort of people, a church that puts up fences, but a church that is joyful at who God is and what he's done for us. But I think the biggest encouragement is there in verse 18 when Paul says this, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, if you're going to get drunk, he says, make sure it's on God's Spirit, which is his life and his love within you. Because God's Spirit will never lead you away from God. It will only lead you towards God. God's Spirit will help you imitate God just as you're called to do. It's worth noting, by the way, what exactly Paul means by be filled with the Spirit. He's not referring to a one-off event in which we suddenly experience the Spirit in a new way. The word in Greek is a present continuous. It kind of keep on being filled with the Spirit is the message. Paul means a daily openness and desire for God's Spirit always within us to flood every part of our lives. Being filled with the Spirit is more to do with my openness to receive all of God's life within me than it is to do with God having a little sort of extra few portions of the Holy Spirit to give out to a few special people. And you see, I really need this because I cannot imitate God on my own. It is a task that is simply too big for me. I need the Holy Spirit working within me. I also need the Holy Spirit to bring deep assurance that I am a dearly loved child of God. The Bible will help me know it, but the Spirit will help me experience it. I need the Holy Spirit to recognize the works of darkness for what they are. I need the Holy Spirit to help me repent of them and to give me strength to resolve to walk away from them. And I need the Holy Spirit to help me live in God's light, to drive my thankfulness and fill my worship. And the good news is all I need to do is ask. Paul said, as a a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit dwells in me, but if I ask and open my heart, God will fill me afresh each day with his life within me. The question is, will I ask? Will you ask? Because if I'm honest, I'm sometimes weak on both the practical points that Paul raises in this letter. I know the call to imitate God as his dearly loved child. That's very clear to me. It's always been clear to me since I've become a Christian. But I am often not real enough about the works of darkness, nor open enough to the work of the Holy Spirit to help me live as a child of light. So I guess that's what I want to leave us with this morning. I just want to ask, will we ask for the Holy Spirit to bring God's word to life in our hearts? Maybe you need the Holy Spirit to help you repent, to recognize and resolve. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. It may be that you need the Holy Spirit to assure you that you're a dearly loved child of God. It, It may be that you want the Holy Spirit simply to help you celebrate, even in the midst of trial, that God is good. I don't know, but I do know that each believer has the Holy Spirit and all we need to do is ask. 